Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. George R.R. R. Martin is known these days as the author of the series of fantasy novels known collectively as A Song of Ice and Fire, and adapted for television into the hit HBO series Game of Thrones. In 1991, five years before the publication of Game of Thrones, and evidently before its conception, my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to chat with George R. R. Martin on our program Probabilities. At the time, he'd just completed work writing for the television series Beauty and the Beast, and most of his interests concerned television and its standards and practices. As you listen to the interview, you can discern elements that will play a role in the genesis of Game of Thrones. We start by discussing how we came to write for Beauty and the Beast. What prompted you to move into the realm of television? Well, I had actually moved into television before Beauty and the Beast. One of my novels was a, was a novel called Armageddon Rag, which came out in uh, 1983, I believe. And it was optioned for a feature film by a man named Phil Daguerre. Feature film was never made, but Phil did do a couple drafts of the screenplay, and he, uh, unlike most other people in Hollywood who have optioned my prose work, Phil wanted my input, so he flew me out to uh, Los Angeles, and we had we had numerous meetings as he was commencing the pr- project. And in that way, I got to know Phil Daguerre, and a couple years later, it turned out that Phil was the executive producer in charge of the revived Twilight Zone. And since we had this um, ongoing professional relationship already, he uh, hired me to do a script, just one script on a freelance basis. And uh, they liked it well enough that pretty soon I found myself on staff at Twilight Zone as a as staff writer and uh, then a story editor in its last uh, season and a half. And that was how I began in television. When Beauty and the Beast came up, which was a year after the the demise of the uh, CBS version of Twilight Zone, essentially my agent just sent around some samples of my Twilight Zone work, and they liked what they read and hired me. What exactly did you do on Beauty and the Beast? Well, I was a writer-producer. My primary function was writing and working with other writers. You know, writing my own scripts, but also conducting pitch sessions with freelance writers, hiring freelance writers to do scripts, uh, supervising them through rewrites and, and uh, so forth and so on. And then as I became a producer, you know, you also deal with your script all the way through to production process, uh, casting the shows, uh, working with a director, working with all of the technical departments, the, uh, you know, the prop man and the special effects man and... Uh, going over things like that, and uh, toward the end I was also involved a little in post-production. Beauty and the Beast had a very strange history. It was cancelled, I believe, once and came back by popular demand. No, that's really not uh, accurate. There's a sort of a legend to that effect, but it was put on hiatus at the at the end of the second season. We ran two full seasons and a um, partial third, 12-show third. first two seasons were 22 shows each. At the end of season two, CBS 
couldn't find a suitable space for us on the fall schedule. They actually did offer uh, the production company, which was Witt Thomas Productions, uh, Tony Thomas and Paul Witt, they did offer them a space uh, on Saturday night, which would have given us a full third season. But Paul and Tony turned it down because it was a time slot opposite Paul and Tony's other show, Golden Girls, and they had no intention of competing with themselves on rival networks. So when we turned down that slot, CBS says, well, we had no slot for you, but we'll order 12 shows and we'll bring you back as a mid-season replacement. Um, Some of the Beauty and the Beast fans have kind of encouraged this legend that the show was canceled and they wrote a million letters and demanded that it be brought back and they did indeed write a million letters i don't want to put down their their dedication or love to the show but essentially all the decisions were made the same day the day that we wouldn't be on the schedule the decision was also made that we would get an order for 12 shows and we would come back as a mid-season replacement I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with Star Trek and Star Trek fandom, which was probably the original television fandom and grew out of science fiction fandom and consisted of a number of active science fiction fans who loved the old Star Trek show and waged that famous campaign after it was canceled that resulted in it coming back for third season. That was really probably the first really active fandom, sub-fandom devoted to a television show. Uh, But since then, almost all science fiction fantasy genre television shows generate some kind of uh, fan activity. Fanzines, um, fiction zines, uh, so forth and so on. Even independent conventions. There have been uh, several Beauty and the Beast conventions, and Beauty and the Beast is frequently a, a secondary attraction at some of the Star Trek conventions. So there's a lot of overlap, actually, between uh, Star Trek fandom and Beauty and the Beast fandom. Beauty and the Beast in its third year changed. They killed off Linda Hamilton. What kind of role did you have in the, uh, the final changes of Beauty and the Beast? I certainly had a voice in them. Essentially what happened is, is Linda Hamilton left the show. She wanted to have a baby, and she didn't want to uh, continue in her role as uh, Catherine Chandler. So the writers on the show uh, were faced with the decision of, of how to handle that. And at that time, we were staffed by Ron Coslow, who was the creator of the show and uh, uh, the still the executive producer, and myself, and uh, writing two writing teams, Alex Gantz and Howard Gordon, and Linda Campanelli and Shelley Moore. So uh, numerous people for writing units, uh, as they call them in Hollywood. And we had long meetings about it. You know, the, the decision was, do we recast? Do we just have a, hire another actress to show up to play Catherine Chandler? Or do we um, do something with the character and, and try to deal with this? Uh, we decided not to recast because it has seldom been done successfully in television. Television viewers tend to identify the actor very strongly with the role. They can't seem to imagine uh, another actor in the role. It's, it's uh, in some ways unfortunate that television people are like that because certainly, you know, in plays, millions of actors play the same role. I mean, how many people have played Hamlet over the over the centuries? Uh, in movies, we've had, what, four James Bond now? Five, if you count the Woody Allen version. But recasting is very difficult in the context of television. And we decided there was more dramatic opportunity if we uh, killed the character. Of course, that created vast controversy, which endures to this day. But we knew the job was dangerous when we took it. What can we say? 
What happens when a TV show goes off the air, as Beauty and the Beast has gone off, and seems somehow to have an, I don't want to use the term zombie-like, but it has some sort of uh, ghostly continuation beyond its own lifetime? Well, some shows do. Not all shows. Certainly ours does seem to have that. I've always felt that Beauty and the Beast, like the original Star Trek, is going to endure. One of the things that you've spoken of in the past concerns censorship on television and ways in which you or your staff was kept from doing what they wanted to do. Can you talk about that a little? Two different issues here. We, we had a fair amount of freedom on Beauty and the Beast. I don't, I don't think we were censored to speak of. I, I have had my problems both on Twilight Zone and on Beauty and the Beast with standards and practices. And let me, let me talk, come back to that. I'll talk about that a little bit. But that's relatively minor stuff. The censorship that really disturbs me is the stuff that's going on with the reruns. The Family Channel, which has purchased... The Family Channel, as you know, is the former Christian Broadcasting Network. And I think there's still a Christian Broadcasting Network under uh, a clever plastic disguise. Uh, they still run the 700 Club and Pat Robertson and stuff like that. They're a basic cable operation. They come free with your cable channel. They purchased the right, an exclusive right, to run Beauty and the Beast for uh, a year before we go into general syndication. So since our cancellation last uh, a year ago, January, they have been the, the only one doing this show. Now, we knew that they were going to edit these shows. When they go into syndication, they'll be edited even more. But I find the way the, the shows have been edited on the Family Channel to be objectionable. Uh, we knew they would have to cut a minute, two minutes, whatever the time is, I'm not sure, out of each show to make room for extra commercials. You're allowed in, in reruns, the FCC rules allow you to do more commercials, and of course if it's allowed, they'll, they'll squeeze it in for every buck. Generally, what's being edited, though, are uh, some of the finer things about the show, like the poetry that Vincent would occasionally read. Many of the poetic references and the things like that are, are snipped out. Uh, also, we did not have a whole lot of sex in our show. It was a deeply romantic show, but hardly uh, a sexual hotbed. But occasionally, uh, some minor characters would be seen in bed together or would be implied that some sort of uh, sexual relation. All of that stuff is gone, of course, as being objectionable. But all the violence have been left in. So, you know, you won't, if you watch the show Temptation, for example, you won't see the scene where Joe Maxwell and the guest star of that episode are in bed together with a sheet coming, coming up to uh, covering most of their chest. You won't see that because they're obviously naked under that blanket there and they've, they've done the dirty deed. But you'll see all of the episodes and all of the shows where Vincent eviscerates people and tears them to bits. Beyond that editing of individual shows, the Family Channel has also chosen to omit certain shows entirely. In the first season, we did a show called Dark Spirit. It concerned voodoo. The show was not rerun at all by the Family Channel. They looked at it from a Christian perspective and object to the voodoo. Now, the voodoo people in the show are villains. Uh, so exactly what they object to, I have I have no idea. I mean, this is a, a crazed group of, uh, of, of voodoo practitioners uh, <laughs> doing terrible things. But nonetheless, the show is, the show is gone. Even more disturbing, there was the second season's show, which I co-wrote with a Minneapolis writer named Robert John Gutke, and it's called uh, When the Bluebird Sings. 
and it's one of our gentlest, least violent, and most popular shows, a show that the fans particularly love. This show was also omitted from the Family Channel because it contains a character who may be a ghost. Who may not be a ghost. I mean, it's very clearly written, so it's on the fence. You know, you can make your own decision. Was he a ghost? Was he a fraud? Pretending to be a ghost. You don't know. But it's still enough that the suggestion of the occult was a the Family Channel felt would be objectionable to their Christian viewers, and that show was also dropped from a running schedule. The most amusing and dramatic decisions of all, of course, concerned the third season. For those of you who haven't watched a show, basically when uh, when we knew Linda Hamilton was leaving, we had to write her out of the show, and uh, the plot line that was used in a two-parter called The Lovers Be Lost has, uh, has Catherine and Vincent finally getting sexually involved. Catherine becomes pregnant. She's kidnapped by a villain who waits until the baby is born, kills her, and then kidnaps the baby. And Vincent spends most of the third season searching for his son, who he finds out has existed. And also, of course, looking for the man who killed Catherine to to avenge her. But his main concern is recovering his son. Well, the first thing the Family Channel announced was that they were going to edit in a wedding ceremony for Catherine and Vincent <laughs> using stock footage and outtakes. How they were going to do this, I don't know. I mean, I'm quite familiar. I was there for all three years. I saw every foot that we shot and printed, you know. There was no wedding ceremony between Catherine and Vince or anything approximating it. But maybe they would have been able to do something like this by taking a snippet here, a snippet there, a few close-ups of voiceover. But Ron Coslow, the the creator of the show, very quickly put a stop to this. He said, this is nonsense, and you don't have the right to do it. And you certainly, you know, you have the right to edit the shows. We can't stop you doing that. But you certainly don't have the right to insert any new material. So there would be no wedding ceremony. At that point, the family channel announced that they were going to edit out all references to this illegitimate child from the third season shows. Now, that one also really cracked us up, because if you edit all references to the illegitimate child out of the third season shows, you have no third season shows. You have hour-long shows that are going to run about 10 minutes. Not only that, but the complete driving force of the entire plot is gone. I mean, these stories will become absolutely incomprehensible. What is he looking for? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we were looking forward to seeing how they did that with great amusing and amusement. But uh, finally, someone there realized they couldn't do that either. So they chose to drop the third season entirely and not to broadcast any of the third season shows because they contain this disturbing element of, uh, of an illegitimate child and out-of-wedlock sex. This has all annoyed me. I know I've had this argument. People say it's not censorship since they're not a government installation. Uh, they're they're a private uh, person. They've purchased it, and it's equivalent to, you know, some little old lady who doesn't want to sell Playboy at her at her card shop. But I don't accept that equivalent. I mean, if if an individual proprietor doesn't choose to sell Playboy at their little shop. You can still buy Playboy down at the corner newsstand, uh, but the Family Channel bought an exclusive franchise here. They controlled our shows. No one else could show them in the country. And so with their decision as to what not to show, they're effectively denying the ability of those shows to be seen at all by anyone 
at least during the period of their exclusivity. We're talking about censorship now. You raised the fact that the issue that uh, sex is censored out, whereas violence is left in. I have heard this complaint many times from different sources, and I find it extremely puzzling to me. Why would why would violence be okay, but sex not? Don't ask me to explain that. If I understood it, I'd uh, be a lot happier man. And that is the way it is in television. It probably says something about our country, and I suspect it says something very unfortunate about our country, frankly. The other part of the censorship thing that I was going to get to that ties in a little with this is this, this whole question of censorship actually when we're making the shows. We actually didn't have many of that, so I don't want to come down on that. We, we had pretty much a free hand, especially in the second season and, and beyond. All of the networks have censors, which have various names. They're usually called standards and practices these days, and the word censor having acquired unfortunate connotations. But because of budget cuts at most of the networks, the, the, the censors no longer censor all of the shows. They don't have the manpower to review them all. So what happens is a new show gets a censor on it for the first season. And so that was when we had all of our all of our fights, and they usually came down to uh, questions about sex, violence, or language. And we went through this both on Twilight Zone and then later on uh, on Beauty and the Beast. You know, they count dams and hells. So yeah, I mean, you get these you get these call where you have ten dams and three hells. I'm sorry, that's thirteen. That's uh, we only permit ten per hour. So you have to cut two dams and a hell. Pardon me, are you making this up? Is this hyperbole or does this literally happen? This literally happens. I have mixed feelings about the whole issue of violence, which of course in television terms is called action. You know, at the same time, uh, the standards and practices people are saying there's an unacceptable level of violence in their shows and you're getting that from them, the network programming people are saying, your shows are too dull, we want more action. So you have to give them action without violence. And, you know, since action is violence, action is just network talk for violence, this is a difficult thing. Partly I agree that American television is too violent. How many dramatic shows can you recall seeing in which when no one dies violently? Well, it's hard to think of any, you know. Uh, American television uses death as an act break. It's an excellent act break, but our second season, we, when Beauty and the Beast was riding high and we, we had some very good ratings, that buys you freedom, and we were able to do some shows that were pure character pieces that were not violent at all, and those are in some ways are some of the shows that I'm, I'm most proud of. That's why there's a real irony about the censoring of Bluebird. That was one of the best shows we ever did, and it's not violent at all. Vincent didn't tear anyone to bits. If you're going to portray violence, I think you should portray it honestly. I have real problems with the attitude of standards and practices and, and the networks in general, that they want lots of violence, but they don't want it to be ugly. It leads to a, almost a glorification or a prettifying of violence, where you're not allowed to show the, the consequences. You're not allowed to show that death is ugly. You're not allowed to make it shocking or unpleasant. I mean, if I'm going to portray death on screen... If that's what they insist on to get their shows the action, I want death to be ugly. I want to show the grief that follows it. I want to show the emotional pain. I want to shake the the people at home up a little. And that's precisely what they don't permit. And their things are just, you know, very arbitrary. I mean, not only dams and hells, some of the things are the standards and practices things are just ludicrous. We had one show called China Moon. Before I get to China Moon, they count bodies. 
We had an earlier show called uh, No Way Down, in which there was a, a gang war and a, a storefront full of gang people were blown up. And there was a line in the script, uh, you know, Catherine arrives on the scene and they said there's something like, four bodies covered by sheets lie in the street. And, you know, we get the note, too many dead here. Uh, could you make it two bodies? So, <laughs> so we made it two, two bodies covered by sheets lie in the street. The only reason for changes like this is because, you know, there are these morons out there in the, the non-violence PTA committees who are counting bodies, and the count just went down by two, so it makes them look a little better. It doesn't make television any less significantly violent. I mean, this is a background shot, a bunch of bodies lying in the, in the you know, a bunch of sheeted forms in the street. Is that going to have any significant effect on you know, or what we're teaching our kids or our culture, that there's two instead of four. No, but it's the kind of hypocritical game that the network standards and practices people play. China Moon, uh, which I was getting to, uh, well, first of all, we had to cut down the bodies. We had to, this Chinese Tong invades the tunnels and the climax of that, you know, and, uh, you know, the guy goes down with a whole bunch of men, you know, so, and Vincent kills them all. <laughs> and, and I said, too many men, you know, you have to get rid of, uh, you know, boy, he kills 13 people. Could he just kill eight people? So, you know, <laughs> that was fine. That saved on our budget, too. We, we, uh, we didn't have to uh, hire all of those actors. Uh, and stuntmen to die. But the climax of the show was all of the underlings and the thugs have been killed. And Vincent is facing the last, uh, the Chinese warlord. Throws down his weapon, he's, he's unarmed, and he's saying, you won't kill an unarmed man. And the beast in Vincent is struggling with the human in Vincent as to whether he should kill him, because he knows if he lets him go, the guy's just gonna get a bigger army and come back. The way the plot resolved, it was an earlier stage where we we had what we thought was a better notion where Vincent actually does kill him, but uh, we dropped that in-house for our own reasons, and I think it was a mistake, but we did it anyway. And we arrived at a thing where uh, one of his men is still alive, and these guys are all armed with, like, ninja weapons. So this guy is, like, coming up behind Vincent, and he flings a throwing star. Vincent hears it coming, and it's coming at Vincent, and he ducks down, and it kills the warlord. Okay. So, like in the first draft, the throwing star goes into his throat, you know. Well, we got a horrified call from Standards and Practice. You can't, you know, you can't put this horrible thing in the guy's old man's throat and kill him, you know. Cut it out, you know. So, I was the, the writer-producer who was doing the rewrites on this. It was, the script was originally by a freelancer. So I said, oh, all right, I can't put it in his throat. Okay, it goes in his eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you should have heard that thing. It can't go in his eye, you know. So what they insisted we did is that it go in his chest. Well, the only thing is, if you ever see a throwing star, it's a little tiny kind of thing, you know. And the chest is like ribs and, you know, <laughs> a lot of stuff. And like, getting a throwing star in your chest doesn't actually kill you, which we needed to be done here. But standards and practices was completely oblivious to this point. So what we wound up saying around in-house is, well, we guess the shock must have killed him, you know. <laughs> you know, the old man just had a massive heart attack at that point in time when he got the, the throwing star in his chest, which nicked him slightly. Please notice what's happening here with standards and practices and this, this campaign about violence here. Um, at no point did standards and practices ever suggest to us that this man not die. The show was not going to become less violent. And I certainly didn't suggest let's not have this big violent ending where Vincent kills all those people. They liked all that action, but they wanted, you know, most of the deaths to be off stage. 
they wanted to make it clear that it wasn't quite dead. That was another very amusing thing. Uh, in Vincent's dialogue with the old Tong leader, you know, when he first emerges from the shadows underground, and he's killed the three guys that, or, or he's attacked. We haven't seen what's happened because there's a lot of mists and darkness. But the three guys who were with the old Tong leader are no longer around. So the Tong leader says, I have, I have other men out in the tunnels too. And Vincent says, all dead. And we got a note from Standards and Practices. Well, this makes it very clear that he's killed them, and we don't want him to be that violent. So could you make it, you know, none left? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, we had a lot of fun with that. So well, how about fresh out, you know? Well, I have other men to know fresh out. <laughs> None left, you know, what, what, and, and the, the note also said, you know, and this way it makes it clear that he hasn't, um, he hasn't killed them, he's just destabilized them. So for the entire run of Beauty and the Beast, that became a sort of a staff joke. Well, this it really destabilized the hell out of that guy. I would like to get, if possible, to a couple of your novels briefly. Fever Dream, Mark Twain meets Dracula. How did the idea come about? Well, I lived in Dubuque, Iowa for a number of years in the late 70s. Dubuque is an old riverboat town. It used to manufacture steamboats. It's right on the river. And uh, I, I fell in love with the history of the time. I'd always wanted to do a vampire novel. And somehow the two ideas just kind of grew together in my head that it should be a, a, a period piece, a steamboat vampire novel. It's similar in certain respects to, uh, to the Anne Rice books. Has anybody ever said that? Yeah, at the time I wrote it, there was only one of them was out, the interview with the vampire. But, uh, yeah, there certainly are some overlap. You're going to write a sequel to this? Uh, yeah, I've thought about it. Uh, there's been a lot of requests for a sequel over the years. And I've done, been doing a lot of research about 1890s New York, which is another of my favorite periods, and I think I would use that if I, if I did do uh, a second book. I, I think that Fever Dream and this potential sequel have great, great potential for the screen. And yet, uh, my perception is that historically oriented motion pictures are very much out of vogue. Is this a correct impression? Unfortunately, it is, yes. They're, I think that's, uh, that is very sad. Uh, it's even worse in television and in movies. But period pieces are considered very expensive, and they're also considered not tremendously commercial. I had one... Uh, one studio wished to option Fever Dream at one point, but they wanted to make it a contemporary. And I said, oh, great, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, how do you deal with the steamboats then? Uh, so, well, I have to drop that. I mean, or make them expert. I mean, it's not the same if you make it a contemporary. And I think that's part of the, uh, the poverty of the cultural poverty of America today traces to that. I mean... I'm sure you're all familiar with these recent studies and books that have been done that, that show that a frightening proportion of our of our kids can't place uh, the United States on the map of the world or things like that. And there's a lot of criticism of the educational institutions because of that, which they probably deserve. But I think television and film also bear a great responsibility for this. I don't see that entertainment should be educational, you know, necessarily. But when I grew up, I watched some pretty trashy and entertaining shows that nonetheless did educate me. I mean, television and movies when I grew up was full of all times and places. There were, there were westerns. There were shows about King Arthur and Robin Hood. You could watch Rama the Jungle, and you could watch Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and you could watch Circus Boy. You had uh, the, there was a show about the Foreign Legion 
the French Foreign Legion. These were kid shows. And no, they may not have been historically accurate shows. You watch them today and you laugh at their inaccuracies and their stereotypes and their stupidities. But nonetheless, you learned like where Africa was, that there were elephants and natives and, uh, and, and there, and that it was cold in the Yukon and that people got around by sled dog. You learned a little bit about history and other cultures. Today, there's nothing, nothing but suburban American big cities. I mean, it's like this country and the television and film industry that entertain it want to look at nothing but their own images in the mirror. If it doesn't take place in, in Spielberg land, suburban America, we don't want to see it. And we don't want to even see things that are off. I mean, try to sell a story about a circus today. No one wants to see that either. You can't sell that in Hollywood. I, I've been involved in the circus. Uh, people are strange in the circus. We want to deal with normal people. The audience, the normal people audience wants to watch shows about other normal people. Uh, it's aggravating. You mentioned uh, Fever Dream as a uh, period piece. Your 1983 novel, or thereabouts, Armageddon Rag, has also been described as a period piece of another sort. People have referred to it as, that's George R. R. Martin's 60s book. Everybody has to write a 60s book, and that one is his. What about that? Oh, it is my 60s book. <laughs> I don't deny that at all. It's actually set in the early 80s, but uh, which is when I wrote it contemporary setting at the time but it reflects very heavily on the on the 60s and what we all went through in the 60s most particularly what i went through in the 60s uh so in a, in a sense it is a uh, historical you wrote dying in the light which um, struck me as being a fascinating travelogue about a uh, world that's a world's fair to end all world's fairs and then you came out with a novel, a collaboration. You wrote Wind, uh, Windhaven, Fever Dream, Armageddon Rag, and some short stories, some of which were collected in Tough Voyaging. But after Armageddon Rag, there were no novels. This is eight years. What happened? Television. I mean, the, the Twilight Zone, I was working on a new novel in 1985 when uh, in early 86, I, I got involved in Twilight Zone. And Twilight Zone led to Beauty and the Beast, and, um, you know, that's really filled up the, the last... Uh, chunk of my my life i have been doing wild cards all through that so i haven't left prose entirely and i've done a handful of, of short stories and a novelette or two but television particularly if you're on staff on a series is extremely time consuming and uh, writing novels is also extremely time consuming each one of my novels usually took me about a year and i haven't had a spare year since uh since i got involved in that side of the industry how do you feel about that? Would you rather stay in TV as you've been or get back to writing books, or do you have some third course planned? Uh, well, planned is a generous word. Uh, I'm kind of divided on this subject. I mean, prose is my first love, and I would definitely uh, uh, never want to give it up. I want to write more books. I want to write more novels and short stories and so forth. But there's an excitement to television, too, that I can't deny. It was fun when Beauty and the Beast was on. There are th rewards that you get from television that you don't necessarily get from books. Well, first of all, there are tremendous financial award rewards. And anyone who says that's not a factor, I think, is a liar or an idiot. You know, the, the pay in television is just extraordinary. But there's also, I, I mean, there's, there's real highs. I remember the, the first television script I did, which was an adaption of uh, Rogers Lasney's Last Defender of Camelot. You know, I, I write the script. It goes through a couple drafts. 
suddenly they're building Stonehenge on the stage beside my office. You know, there's there's a hundred people working to to make this this uh, dream of Rogers Lasney's, which I've had the the privilege to interpret, into a reality. And certain, suddenly we're sitting down and actors like Richard Kiley and Norman Lloyd are are saying the dialogue that I wrote. There's, there's an excitement to that. There's a, a level of seeing your dreams made flesh that uh, has an addictive quality. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.